Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. I've returned from the Singapore Air Show with my sanity more or less intact, and uh, I'll have a lot more to say about that on a future occasion. There's just a fair bit happening domestically in Australia that I'm going to concentrate on. But apart from the air show itself, which is always interesting, there were no huge announcements, I had the chance to spend a bit of time with Singapore Technologies Engineering, which is the country's national champion when it comes to uh, not only defence manufacturing, but some other high-end commercial production as well. And I'll have a lot more to say about that in the future, because This idea of having a single national champion when it comes to medium-sized countries makes a lot of sense. And Sweden has Saab, Norway has Kongsberg, Finland has Patria. Once countries have bigger economies, they can go beyond having a a single national champion. The UK has BAE Systems. Uh, They're supported by smaller companies such as Babcock, BMT and Cobham. France has a similar structure. What does Australia have? Scattered bits and pieces, to be frank. I mean, there's a huge amount of talent out there, but it's packed into these subsidiaries of foreign-owned entities, and no Australian-owned company that could be considered large enough to be a prime system integrator in its own right. For me, that's a major deficiency. Anyway, we'll have a bit more to say about that in the future. On February the 20th, the government's response to the surface fleet review was handed down. I'm not going to go through all of those details. That's already been uh, fairly extensively covered. There are a few basic questions about this, including I still don't understand why it took the government so long to formulate a response. Salient features are that the Hunter-class frigates have been reduced from nine to six. As expected, Lurson have been treated like dirt and have been ditched after six down-designed arafuras are delivered. That looks like the end of their future in Australia, which I think is a very serious mistake. There's provision there for a future non-existent six optionally crewed missile-carrying surface ships that are under consideration in the US and that Defence Minister Richard Miles bizarrely says will be fully crewed. I mean, honestly, what's the point of investing all of that money in AI-enabled systems and then basically declare up front, we're never going to use it? Just get a surface ship that's going to be much cheaper than something that's at the leading edge of technology. On top of that, the Tier 2 Anzac frigate replacement, that'll be between 8 and 11 ships in the 3,000 to 4,000 tonne range, My concerns there, no, it's a good idea, don't get me wrong, but my concern is how long it will take to deliver because they're looking, or will look, I don't think anyone expects Navy to be ready to go other than people like me. They're looking at designs from Germany, Spain, South Korea and Japan, which by itself, that's that's an interesting shortlist because it does show a sort of orientation away from traditional suppliers with the inclusion of Japan and, and South Korea. I think that's a, that's a significant um, development. The problem is 
that the review is trying to fix 20 years of mistakes, and it can't do that instantly. By the way, this isn't 2020 hindsight. What I'm about to discuss was widely known, debated at the time. The Hobart-class air warfare destroyers should have been continuously built in batches of three with technology updates. But way back in about 2014 or 2015, when the first three Hobarts were well underway and it looked like there was a looming gap coming up in production of surface ships. As I understand, Navy was asked if they were interested in a fourth AWD and said pretty firmly, no, no, they were not. Which again, I know that I tend to use the word bizarre quite frequently. It's appropriate to the circumstances because if back then the right thing had occurred and production of the Hobart class had continued in batches of three, in the United States, they called that they do flights, Ali Burke destroyers, flight one, flight two. I think they're up to about flight four at the moment. The idea being that each batch of three or five or in the United States, 20, you insert new technology each time. By now, we could easily have had nine Hobart-class air warfare destroyers in three batches with the final batch of three specialising in anti-submarine warfare and the opportunity to just keep on churning them out. Anyway, that was an opportunity that was overlooked. And I'll also say that stretching the Hobart class, they're currently 147 metres long versus 149 for the Hunter, is from a naval engineering point relatively easy. That There are limits. There are certain ratios about the beam of the ship to its length and maintaining speed and stability and, and all of those things. But a small increase in length is not a scary thing at all. And once you increase length, you also increase displacement, and that gives you the chance to add on more and heavier weapons. The hull form is basically an Ali Burke. I mentioned Ali Burke a few sentences ago, and they're around the world. The Spaniards use them, the Norwegians, the South Koreans, and the Japanese. The Korean KDX-3 Batch 2 is 176 metres long with the same hull form, and that carries a massive 128 vertical launch cells. So if back in the early 2000s, people had really got their act together in government and particularly in the Department of Defence and Navy and mapped this out, we would be in a far, far better place than we are now. And for the Arafura class offshore patrol vessels, which I've said now on multiple occasions, Navy have gone out of their way to deride the design that they themselves had chosen. If they had stuck with the original configuration for Brunei, that was with a 57mm main gun, four surface-to-surface missiles in the Australian inventory. Those four missiles could be the Kongsberg Naval Strike Missile, which will be going on the Anzacs and the air warfare destroyers. They also were more, or were fully capable, I should say, of helicopter operations with inertial landing systems and things like that. Now, if Navy had simply ordered the final, uh, the, the Brunei configuration for those and stuck with it for the first six OPVs, 
they would be militarily useful. And then you could continue that production run, morphing to a longer Corvette version of that design, which is low risk because it's currently being built for Bulgaria. You could have used the same Australian suppliers and it would have been a seamless transition. Obviously, none of those things have happened. But my point is, this honestly is not rocket science. This is something that is has been widely discussed in industry and amongst academia and think tanks. And why defence and Navy have cut themselves off and have just become a law unto themselves is beyond me. It's not in their interests, and it's certainly not in the national interest. Anyway, as I've said before, without it all sounding like a vindictive person, I, I, I wish there was some mechanism for finding all of the people responsible for these sorts of decisions, particularly down-designing the Arafuras. That, that, one, that one really irritates me. I wish it were possible to sack, demote, or cancel their pensions. And again, I'm not cruel. It's just the defence system will not respond to change until some people are finally being held to account for some of these, frankly, ridiculous decisions which have put Australia in a position of strategic vulnerability where if just a small amount more common sense had been used 20 years ago, even 15 years ago, we would be in a far, far better place than we are now. Another thing that I've had a chance to look at are the transcripts of the Senate estimates hearing on the 14th of February about Taipan disposal and why they have not been transferred to Ukraine. There's quite a lot more detail in there, some of which is, is worth highlighting. None of it, I would argue, is to the credit of uh, the department or army. For example, the department had to take on notice questions about who signed off on advice to the minister, advice about the disposal of them and, and things like that. And the department, departmental officials acted vague. Oh, well, we'll have to take that on notice. Um, you know, we, we really don't know. Well, I called BS on that one because given the high profile of this topic, People in the department would have a very good idea who has been signing off on what. I know who they are. And so clearly what is happening is that people are running scared on this matter. And I've used examples previously of things like robo-debt. I'm not here alleging anything illegal, but I'm certainly alleging immoral conduct and a conduct of very questionable intelligence and very questionable motive, and for the department to be saying, well, we just really don't know what was involved there, just is wrong. There were repeated references as well to the official request from Ukraine having been received on December the 17th. That is an absurd distraction. As I and just about everyone else looking into this mess has been pointing out repeatedly. The government was notified by Senator David Fawcett on or about October the 10th that Ukraine was interested. That was about a week before the dismantling process actually started. And even more fundamentally than that, when the decision was taken wrongly to permanently ground the Taipans, on the 28th of September, why on that occasion was not the concept 
of delivering these to Ukraine discussed and approved. So for Army and the Department to keep on relying on just the strict legality of the date on which they received an official request, I again think is wrong. And I can tell you what, a lot of people in the Australian community can also see how wrong it is. There was also further repetition of this matter of cost per flying hour, which I've discussed and I'll touch on again. Officials saying that the cost per flying hour of a Taipan is something like $45,000 and that of a Black Hawk is $12,000. Well, it's not an apples and apples comparison. With a Black Hawk, cost per flying hour is calculated basically on when the helicopter is performing a mission. That could be when it's in the air, but also when it's on the ground with its rotors spinning and waiting for troops to jump in and out and things like that. The cost per flying hour of a Taipan is calculated extremely precisely from the moment that it lifts off to the moment that it touches down. So for an identical mission, taking on, starting up the helicopter, taking on troops, flying to an area, landing, waiting there for a time, taking the troops back on, returning to home base and shutting down the engines, you get completely different numbers for whether it's a Taipan or a Black Hawk for the same mission. I mean, it might be something like the Taipan is flying for one hour, but the Black Hawk numerically is considered to be flying for two hours. Could be something as simple as that. So when you take into account the amount of money that is being spent on both platforms, just using that raw metric, just that difference, you would calculate that a Black Hawk is half the cost of a Taipan to operate. And this has just been happening over and over again. Look, a Taipan, yes, it's an expensive helicopter. I've never, I've never doubted that. But for Army to continue to make misleading claims, I don't think helps anyone. And for all of the examples that they give about fleet-wide availability, you know, worldwide fleet availability, total of 500 helicopters delivered, they always manage to leave out of the equation the detail of New Zealand and why New Zealand has been able to successfully operate their helicopters. They've got a fleet of eight. And they are at the world leading edge of availability. A few people in the department tried to, you know, be a bit fuzzy about it. But the facts are New Zealand has been highly successful. Ukraine would be receiving a smaller number than the 45 originally, because we do have to accept that some of them have been so badly damaged that they can't be put back together again. But even if Ukraine could operate a fleet of approximately the same size as New Zealand, say between 8 and 12, it would still be a major contributor to their aeromedical capabilities. And now, thankfully, another development, we have a public inquiry into the circumstances of the Talisman Sabre crash that took the lives of four people. This was announced on February 22nd. Some readers of our website 
have raised questions whether this is a continuing part of a cover-up. And no, 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 I don't, I don't think so. It's a public inquiry. It's very welcome. It's led by uh, a judge uh, and a, a further very important part of this. It will hold public hearings. In the past, defence and army in particular have gone to great lengths whenever any sort of inquiry has been held into Taipan or Tiger, the findings have been concealed. The reason for the inquiry, this is the interesting one. This is pure guesswork on my part, but I suspect that Ministers Miles and Conroy are finally waking up to the fact that not all advice from the department is balanced and reasonable. The previous position of the government is that they were 100% covering up for defence and going along with it. And they might have now come to the realisation that there are so many murky things about the Talisman Sabre crash that they politically and personally are getting in a position of great vulnerability if they just blindly keep on repeating whatever it is that they're being told. Despite the best efforts of army and defence to muddy the waters, a reader comment, I think, summarised the situation like this. A disgraceful blight on Australia, the government and the army. I couldn't have said it better myself, and I'm amazed by the fact that the ministers didn't instantly recognise how bad this would make them look. And so, since this story has come out around December 21st, they have kept on digging and digging, metaphorically, And now they are in such a deep hole, entirely of their own making, that they don't quite know how to get out of it. So there will be more developments in this space for certain. Speaking of updates and corrections, I need to be a bit more positive about Apache attack helicopters, the ones that will be replacing Tiger. I was given a very good briefing at the Singapore Air Show by Boeing, and I thank them for that. My point has always been that the decision to replace Tiger is unnecessary. I stand by that. I have, however, been harsher on Apache than I should have been. And I'm running out of time today, but I am planning to go into that in a whole lot more detail, both in writing and in a future podcast. But on the timing of this, again, Army and Defence is planning for a capability gap you would have to wonder why they are following a strategy of taking all of the Tiger armed reconnaissance helicopters out of service by the end of this year, and that's when the first of the Apaches will only have just arrived at best, and with the final one being delivered in 2029. Why does Defence keep on doing this over and over again? Surely the only sensible way of planning any of these activities is to phase the arrival of Apache more precisely with the withdrawal of Tiger. A couple of Apaches arrive, you take a couple of Tigers out of service. Anyway, my idea, by the way, and I'm going to conclude with with this big picture vision, since I'm a big fan of Tiger, since we've paid for them, since they're now operating very effectively, either start planning now and I mean now, like last week, to donate them to Ukraine, or keep and store them and start thinking about how to use them in a manned, unmanned teaming arrangement with the Apaches. 
They're smaller, lighter, more agile. Airbus, the manufacturer, has already done a lot of work on optionally crewed helicopters. So with the assistance of industry and the Defence Science and Technology Group, start converting a few Tigers. Once you take the two human operators out of the mix, you can add a lot more fuel to them. The current operational range is 800 kilometres. I suspect that with those modifications, you might even be able to double that. They would be a fantastic uninhabited aerial system to be working in conjunction with the Apaches. So rather than burying them deep in the ground or handing them over to museums and RSL clubs, let's think now about how to take advantage of them and make use of the military technology that's embedded in them. The combination of Apache and uninhabited tigers would be an extremely extremely formidable one. So come on, Army, come on, Defence, there's a good positive idea for you. Rather than just reflexively saying no, get off your backsides and do something. Okay, that's it for today. I just run out of time. I had a lot of other things, but we'll have to wait for next week. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you next time. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.